Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general nature, does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. So today is another, I think our third in a row, listener-requested episode, and we're going to be looking at investing platforms. But first, Shani, we had our Investing Compass celebration on Friday, so you, me, and Will. We went to Korean barbecue. Korean barbecue. And, and this was your first time. <laughs> it what, was my first what time. What did you think about it? It was great. Will did all the cooking and he was really good. So. Okay. So was that great. was good. And yeah. then what did we do? Um, we went bowling. Okay. And, and how did that go for you? We've talked about your bowling skills mm, before. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty, you know, par for the course. Yeah. 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 Um, I believe you actually beat Will once. <laughs> I did, yeah. But anyway. So that says more about Will than me, to be honest. Probably, probably. Um, and I sustained an injury. You did, which you still have. I know. They did not They did not make us put on bowling shoes, which I thought was nice because nobody wants to put on bowling mm-hmm. shoes. And you know how stylish I am. Yeah. And but you were wearing RMs. I know, but I slipped and banged the bowling ball into my <laughs> leg and I still have this like bump, um, which is a little bit odd. And then, uh, and then how was the rest of the day? Yeah, and um, so we went and met some of Will's friends for drinks and at a really nice whiskey bar, um, and then we went and saw a psychic. So. We did, we did. We had our... At a, at a bar. At a bar, yeah. yes. We were there for the drinks. We uh, stayed for the psychic. <laughs> but uh, we had tarot cards read. Mm-hmm. They said I was going to do some sort of education, further education. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Mm. Okay, so I thought it was a good night. Yeah. And then how did the night finish? I mean, are you, are you not going to say what they said about you? I gave a little bit of what they said to me. Go on. You can tell <laughs> no, people. No, no. You go for it. No. <laughs> okay. Let's hear it, Shani. I guess we're, we're not going to go there. All right, so. Okay. And the, and the night ended, by the way, with Shani eating a Big Mac. In my lobby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It was a great time. So <laughs> let's get back to the episode. It is a listener requested episode and um, we're going to speak about investing platforms. So investing platforms is a really broad term and can mean a few different things. Basically what they are is an investment product that can house a number of investments and these investments can be chosen by someone else or chosen by you depending on the product. So there's traditional investing wrap and fund platforms which are used by a lot of financial advisors but are becoming increasingly popular with retail investors. Then there's micro-investing and investing platforms like Raise, Comsec Pocket, Perla, and Spaceship, which make investing accessible with low barriers to entry. And lastly, there's brokerage platforms like Superhero and Stake, which allow you to trade listed securities. Okay. So as you probably got from Shawnee's description, there's a lot of different products there. So most have popped up in the recent past to appeal to self-advised investors as the cost of financial advice has risen. And we've seen a lot of investors, especially young investors, move towards these platforms that provide intuitive interfaces and compelling investment themes. And yeah, just something to talk about with your mate. Yeah. And I think that What's appealing about these platforms is that traditionally the financial services industry has been inaccessible, rigid, and stuffy. And a lot of these platforms are seen as democratizing investing by making it easier to understand and reducing the barriers to entry. And in turn, this has forced traditional platforms to do the same and become more investor-friendly. Sounds like a win-win, but as we all know, businesses are run to make a profit and this isn't about altruistic motives. Exactly. So today's episode explores these platforms. We'll look at what they're charging what they're offering. We'll be talking about 
products today, and we're going to structure this in a way where we can hopefully help you understand the risks and trade-offs that you need to make an educated decision. So by the end of this, we hope that you'll be able to understand whether these different platforms can help you build and maintain your portfolio. Yeah. And I think the best place to start is with the classics. So investing wrap and fund platforms have been around since the 1980s in Australia, and the market has traditionally been dominated by large established players. But we've seen the entry of specialist providers recently that are eating into their market share. These platforms were pretty inaccessible for self-advised investors, and a lot of them limited access to them, only allowing you to jump on board if you came through a financial advisor. And there were two main types of platforms. The first and original were platforms that were used primarily to hold managed fund investments. Gradually, though, as these platforms grew in popularity to administer super, they expanded to become wrap platforms and they allowed you to hold all different types of assets in the one place and administer them with a consolidated view. Yeah, and both of these types of platforms are still around, or of course, we wouldn't be talking about them. So wrap platforms are pretty popular with advised clients and clients with self-managed super funds because it makes reporting and tax a little easier. And normally, because they have assets all over the place, so they might have an investment in property, funds, direct equities, cash accounts, and a wrap platform allows you to have all of these different types of assets in one place. Fund platforms, though, have become friendlier for self-advised investors, allowing them to access a suite of funds in one place. So, Shani, you are, are perhaps the only millennial that uses a fund <laughs> platform. Do you think that that's actually true? Um, probably not, but I, I don't think there's many of us. Probably not. But anyway, yeah. So, Shani, you invest in funds through platforms. So. Mm-hmm. I think you're the best person, obviously, to talk about it. I'm much into, you know, the younger and hipper um, <laughs> ways to invest. But uh, Like ETFs, which you call a marketing ploy? I call some ETFs a marketing <laughs> ploy, but yes. Um, but anyway, why don't you talk about some of the features of the platform that you use and I think importantly for everyone, what you pay? Yeah, sure. So um, investing in funds through a platform was actually my first investment. So it was great for me because I was on a graduate salary and I could invest with $1,000. And that's the first great thing about platforms. The minimums are often a lot lower than going directly to a fund manager. So as I ma- mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I'm invested in T. Rowe Price Global Equity through a platform. If I were to act access the fund through the fund manager directly that asked me to part with a minimum initial investment of $500,000 and each subsequent investment has a minimum of $100,000 and they charge 0.94% per annum as a management fee. Okay, so so that's not really achievable on a graduate salary. No, or any salary, really. Okay, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about platforms. And so, as you said, you access it for a low minimum investment and then subsequent investments, but there must be trade-offs here. Yeah, well, firstly, I would say that the platform that I invest through and many of the large ones connected to banks or fund managers were built for financial advisors. So their platforms and processes aren't as intuitive as you would like. I could hands down say that if I didn't work in the industry, I probably wouldn't be invested in this product, even if it was the best fit for me. And what I'd also say is that they have a large range of investments that you can invest in through one platform, but just be wary as fees can vary. And you wouldn't be naive to think that they'd all vary in the same direction, which is up. But sometimes you can find that because platforms are able to access wholesale pricing, they can match or sometimes beat going directly to the fund manager. What I get, though, is the ability to access funds that I wouldn't be able to normally due to restrictive initial and additional additional investments, the ability to diversify across asset classes. That is, even with a small balance, I didn't have to invest just in one fund and put all my eggs in one basket. And at tax time, I get one tax statement, regardless of how many funds I'm invested in. Okay. So, you know, these aren't as popular with self-directed 
investors, but you know, what are what are some of the ones that are popular in Australia? Yeah, sure. So there's colonial first state first choice, there's perpetual wealth focus investment advantage and net wealth, which is a bit more of a retail investor friendly option. Yeah. So, of course, this all comes at a cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to access all of these investments in one place, you do pay a little bit of a premium, and that's what's known as an administration fee. And this administration fee varies from platform to platform. Most of the time, it's a percentage-based fee. In my case, I have six funds that I've invested through um, my platform in, and all of them would be inaccessible to me with the initial investments I put into them if I went directly. So I mentioned T-Row is 500k, Magellan Global is 10k um, initial investment, which isn't too bad. But when you're starting out, I would have had to put all my savings in that one fund. Um, I'm also invested in Lazard Global Infrastructure, and that's a 20k minimum investment. So I calculated that for the six funds that I was in, if I were to have invested directly, I would have needed a minimum investment of $540,000 with 93% of my investment in one fund. And that kind of demonstrates the power of these platforms. It gives you flexibility through lower minimum investments to execute your own asset allocation and diversify in the ways that you want to diversify. And what I'll also say is that fees can vary from platform to platform. I was able to find fees that at the time were quite competitive. The other two funds I invest in are through Vanguard and up until October last year when they removed their managed retail offering, um, the funds were cheaper through this platform than going directly. So they've removed the retail offering now, so there's not really any fair comparison. But yeah, the lesson from this is to make sure that if there's funds that you're interested in investing to shop around on platforms and chances are that if they're on one platform they'll be on others okay so what what is a type of investor that might benefit from this type of platform yeah so it'd be someone like me so a lower balance to start off with looking to invest in collective investment vehicles and investing paycheck to paycheck so brokerage doesn't really make as much sense what i also love about this platform over maybe a robo advice platform is that i have a chance to pick the managed funds the allocations to certain asset classes and customize my exposure so when i think of robo advice and um, what it does remind me of is group insurance policies group insurance policies are designed to cover a mass of people and wouldn't and won't be customized to your situation or needs. So if something happens to you outside of the policy coverage, it's bad luck. RoboAdvice is there to suit a mass of people and means that you do get to enter the market, but it might not fully account for your situation of needs and or needs and is bad luck if you don't end up reaching your required rate of return to get to your goal. What investing platforms like this allow you to do is manage that risk a little better because you have more control. Yeah, so I think that's actually a really interesting comment about robo-advice, which I know we'll talk about later, but that's not at all how it's sold, right? So, you know, I, I personally have huge issues with robo-advice, especially the way it's done in Australia, because while it's being sold as personalized, it is done in, yes, a regulatory compliant way, but a pretty lazy approach as they focus on risk tolerance and not risk capacity. And they don't really encourage investors to think about their goals and their financial situation. So, you know, I know that people struggle with asset allocation and security selection, but thinking about and writing down your goals should be something that everyone can do. And I just think a good robo-advisor should be able to help you with the investing side of things after they prompted you to take a more holistic look at your situation. And, you know, we talked about this before, right, Johnny? A risk tolerance questionnaire is just a shortcut, basically, to get you to put money into an account. So, all right, those are traditional platforms. That mm -hmm. count as a rant. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, a little, little bit, bit. A little yeah. bit. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. So there's traditional platforms and then there's broker platforms. And those are built with end investors in mind, which means that they're a lot more user-friendly and intuitive compared to those traditional platforms. Yeah, that's right, Mark. And broker platforms offer access to listed assets. So equities, ETFs, LICs, LITs, et cetera. Let's go through some of the options in terms of broker platforms. Yeah. And there's so many in the market. So, you know, going through them all, that, that would take probably five episodes. And, you know, we're just going to have to go through them at a high level. So why don't we uh, why don't we do that? And then we'll go into some of the fewer newer entrants. Yeah, sounds good. So first, we have the brokers that are connected to the banks. They're pretty self-explanatory. They charge a bit of a premium to trade, but they do the job. Ultimately, if you're trading pretty frequently, like with every paycheck, they will eat into your returns. Like Comsec, for example, charges $30 US for trades between 5 to 10K in US markets, plus a 0.6% FX rate spread. On a trade of $6,000 US, you'll be paying about 66 US dollars to make an investment in a US stock. That's a 1.1% hurdle before the market has even moved. Okay. So, and Comsec's the largest of, you know, the bank aligned broker platforms. But you mentioned before that there are newer online brokers. Um, so Stake, SelfWealth, IG Markets, eToro, and all the offerings are, of course, a little bit different. So why don't we kind of separate them out because they have separated into free brokerage and then flat free brokerage or flat fee brokerage. I can <laughs> That's speak. That's a bit of a tongue twister. I yeah, know, so. I know. <laughs> and you've done two webinars before this, so exactly. you're forgiven. Exactly. Yeah. So let's start with flat brokerage because that's a little easier to say and to talk about. Flat brokerage is exactly what it says on the box. You pay a flat fee to trade. You can do this through self-wealth and IG markets. What this means is that these brokers are making money through your trading and taking less of a margin on any foreign exchange, which is what we see outfits like Stake do. Yeah. So Stake offers $0 brokerage, so it's free. And of course, people always ask how they do this, but they are not a charity. And of course, they need to make money somehow. And they make this through a 0.7% fee on deposits and withdrawals. So that's a pretty hefty fee, and especially if you have a larger balance. Yeah. And the trade-off is that you get to trade as much as you like when your money is in there without incurring any fees. So really, this model suits those that trade frequently, and that may make that 0.7% fee on deposit and withdrawal worth it. Of course, though, at Morningstar, we believe in long-term investing and timing the market isn't really something we prescribe to. And that overtrading is a recipe for poor investor outcomes. What Stake does offer, though, is accessibility. It's quick and easy access to the US markets. Okay, now we can look at flat fee brokerage. See, I got it that time. <laughs> you did. And, um, you know, a player with a growing presence is Superhero. So Superhero allows you to trade Aussie shares for $5 a trade and actually $0 brokerage, so free trades when you're trading ETFs. Yeah, and really we could go on and on. Yeah, there are just so many of these new entrants that have different pricing models that suit different investing strategies. But what kind of investor would this suit? Yeah, ultimately investors who are looking to invest in direct equities have no choice but to choose a broker. The factors that you should consider across the board remain the same. So number one, are you investing frequently or in a lump sum? So if you're investing frequently, a per trade brokerage system might not be the best approach. If you're investing with a lump sum, you might not want to be charged a deposit fee. Yeah. And is the brokerage fee, of course, competitive? So they can vary as we went through. And I think just like anything else in life, if the product or service you're receiving is exactly the same, just at different price points, go with the cheapest. It's not always as simple as that because there's always differences in the product offerings. But as a general rule, if you're able to trade for less, that's a smaller impact on your investment performance. 
Number three, how is the broker making money and are there hidden fees or charges that mean the transaction doesn't make sense? So, you know, I think this is kind of a clincher, right? Mm -hmm. Are there hidden fees or layered fees that are being charged? Make sure you understand what you're being charged when you commit to a broker. And number four, which is finally, is the advantage of a particular broker an advantage for you as an investor? Meaning, does having free trades mean that you're going to trade more? If it does, it might be worth using different provi- a different provider. Okay, so let's spend a second talking about this because it is something that's important to understand. So, and you know, this is more so in the U.S. than Australia, but things are changing here. Um, and you know, there have been this proliferation of providers that are offering free trades. And this has created a mentality that if something is free, then there's no barrier to not doing it. Well, that really isn't true. So let's start with this false notion that a trade is free. So I looked on Comsec to see the most traded shares in Australia. And this was the week of the 7th of June. And the top traded stock was Zip. The second was NAB. And the third was the beta shares NASDAQ 100 ETF. So you must have loved seeing that, Mark, since we've talked about both zip and tech valuations in previous episodes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I know you're trying to start another rant here, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, let's, let's look at two examples. And so why don't we take zip and then we'll take NDQ. So that's that NASDAQ 100 ETF. So that gives us an example of an equity and an ETF. Well, the first reason the trades are not free is because there's something called the buy sell spread on shares in ETF. So I look yesterday at zip and the difference between the bid and the offer was one cent. The bid is what you will pay for the share if you are buying it, and the offer is the price you can sell it at. And that difference is based on how liquid the underlying market is on the share, which is just shorthand for the number of buyers and sellers. So all this means is that when you are buying a share, you are paying more than you can sell it for. And one cent may not seem like a lot, but that is per share. So it depends upon how big your order is. If you purchase $5,000 of zip, that is over 600 shares. So if you're paying one cent on a round trip, that is all of a sudden a $6 trade. Now, when I looked at NDQ, we had the same one cent difference between the bid and the offer. But with an ETF, there's an added component where the ETF may trade at a discount or a premium to the net asset value. Generally, these are pretty close, but for volatile global ETFs, they can there can be a significant difference, particularly when the market opens. So now NDQ, of course, checks both those boxes. It's volatile and it's global. And I checked yesterday and it was trading at a 3.92% premium, meaning that you're paying $31.01 for assets worth $30.02. So the takeaway here is pretty simple. Trading isn't free even if your broker doesn't directly charge you. And these costs are fine if you are a long-term investor, but we know that this quote-unquote free trading just causes people to trade more. So Robinhood in the US, which is just the epitome of free trading and gamification of investing, hasn't disclosed their trading volumes since June of 2020. Which is a huge red flag. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. But looking at average daily trade volume of 4.3 million shares in June of 2020 and roughly 13 million customers, that equates to more than 7.2 trades per month per customer. Yeah, which which is crazy, right? And you know, to be very clear, if you're trading over seven times per month, you're probably not an investor. You are a gambler. Yeah, and the last thing that we should briefly touch on is tax. That is another cost of trading too much as you will generate capital gains tax on any gains that you have made. There is a discounted capital gains tax if you hold something for longer than one year. But either way, minimizing taxes is one of the best things you can do as an investor. So I think it's time to move on, but we did want to make it clear that 
overtrading leads to bad investor outcomes. Make sure that you know that whatever broker you use and whatever you pay per transaction, there are additional costs that you will incur. These costs will impact your overall returns and your returns will impact your ability to achieve your goals. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. Okay, so let's move on to micro-investing and robo-advice. So this is certainly a growing subset of investing platforms. And really what they're encouraging investors to do is kind of set and forget. So it's a solution that are seemingly tailored to investors' risk profiles, but we'll explore that a little bit. And the most popular platforms are Raise and Spaceship, but there's also Six Park, Stockspot, and Perler. And what these products are seeking to do is fill a space in the market that has been created by the inaccessibility of professional financial advice. It's created model portfolios of sorts that you can invest your money in without having to go to to an advisor. Yeah, and and that's the appeal of these products, right? Their simplicity. They're simple, affordable, intuitive, and from their origin, they were created for consumers, so they're a B2C product, unlike a lot of the traditional financial platforms that you were talking about earlier, Shani. Yeah, so we'll group Six Park, Stockspot, and Raise together because the way that they're structured and the investments that they provide are similar in a lot of ways. These are robo-advice platforms that match you to an asset allocation that's in line with your goals, additional investments, and time horizons. Okay, and we talked about this in our Risky Business episode, um, which, by the way, we had a call this morning with an intern from the U.S. Yeah, at Morningstar in the U.S. And he's saying he's liking the names. Yeah, he likes the names. We try <laughs> yeah. to we tried to change the names a little bit. Um, and you call me the Don Draper of Morningstar. Morningstar yeah. yeah, and that is only in my drinking habits. <laughs> no, uh, no other part of that. Yeah. But um, but anyway, yeah, we discussed this in our risky business episode, and it is really really difficult, obviously, or impossible, say impossible, to understand asset allocation without centering it around your goals. So basing risk on income or age or how much anxiety you have when the market moves is not putting your financial goals at the center of your investment strategy. And that's what often happens with robo-advice. Yeah, robo-advice is definitely a trade-off. And we understand that not everyone can afford or have a base large enough to make professional financial advice make sense. What robo-advice does is it gives you an opportunity to account for some of your personal circumstances, but does not result in a personalized outcome. And that makes sense. These investment platforms are supposed to be scalable products that can get as many people as possible to invest through their platforms. These people are going to have deferring goals, starting points, and time horizons. Yeah. And so the most questions I think we get is around raise. So why don't we use that as an example? But once again, you can apply this to anything. Um, so raise offers a number of portfolios where the underlying holdings are various weightings to, to certain ETFs. They have a few different offerings, including custom portfolios, but let's focus on the main offering. So these ETFs are all large cap corporate and government bonds. Investing in one of their portfolios will give you exposure to Australian, US, European, 
Asian large caps through iShares ETFs and government and corporate bonds through iShares and Russell ETFs. So Raise differentiates itself by offering investors a chance to invest their spare change. So the fees you pay for this service are dependent on a few things. One being your balance and the second being the portfolio that you're investing in. So if you hold under $15,000, you pay $3.50 per month as a maintenance fee and then the underlying issuer fees as well. So that's just what you pay for the ETF. So if you have more than $15,000, you're paying a 0.275% fee. Yeah. So one of the main issues with these platforms is fees. The issue with this is that the average raise balance is now $2,200. And that admin cost of $3.50 on a $2,200 balance is almost 2% plus the underlying issuer fees. Realistically, when I've spoken to friends, they don't even have that $2,200. And the issue is that these fees get pulled from your bank account instead of your investment account. So there's no tangible correlation between the fee that you're paying and the investment. If you have a hundred, if you have a $100 balance and saw that over a year, you lost $42 to fees. I think as an investor, you'd reconsider that option. Yeah. And you know, I got to say that this is a really sneaky way of doing things. That means that the return you were getting in your raise account is inflated because they don't take into account your fees. And to me, this is a huge red flag. I think this is the second red flag that we talked about and an indication that they are not putting your interests as an investor first. The interesting thing is that once you hit that $15,000 balance, they change not only the level of fees, but how they withdraw them. So they take them directly out of your investment account instead of your bank account. And they probably do this because they're worried you're going to start noticing how much you're paying. So what you get for this is an intuitive app that will invest on your behalf and won't charge your brokerage fees if you're investing regularly. And then, of course, you get those roundups that we've talked about. Yeah. And Mark, I know you use this feature. So do you want to go into why you use it? Yeah, which is funny, right? Yeah. Because I'm sitting here saying all this stuff. So <laughs> Just trashing it completely. And you're exactly. Like, but I use it. Exactly. You know, I, and I will say, like, obviously, I want to admit that I use it. But more than anything, I'm just screwing around with it. So I have less than one third of 1% of my net worth in raise. And I really just use it because I like this roundup feature where you spend $1.75 on something and they automatically take the 25 cents and sweep it into your account. So I thought that was kind of fun. But raise did recently raise their monthly fees from $2.50 to what you were talking about, $3.50 a month. Mm -hmm. And I've really just been too lazy to close my account. Yeah. And do you mind if I ask which portfolio you're invested in? Yeah, I'm in the aggressive portfolio <laughs> since, you know, I'm such an aggressive guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I will say that I didn't really think about that much because it as I said, pretty insignificant amount of my net worth. Okay. So let's talk a bit about portfolio construction when it comes to Raise. Raise doesn't have a whole lot of information about how their portfolios are constructed. They basically throw out a couple of concepts in blog posts and in promotional material, concepts like modern portfolio theory and passive investing. We don't have time to go through this in too much detail, but what I'm sure you know about Raise portfolios is that they use passive ETFs to make very active bets from an asset allocation perspective as they vary significantly from a global passive ETF. Exactly. So my aggressive portfolio allocates 5.4% to US stocks, while the overall global index is around 65%. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it all depends. It's been a pretty bad thing lately since the US market is outperformed. But anyway, it's just important as an investor to be aware of what they're doing with these portfolios. And the other thing that bothers me a little bit is I look last night to see my performance and guess what? 
They make the performance figures so confusing it is next to impossible to tell the underlying performance of the investment and the performance of your own account, which includes all of these constant contributions. So if I had a bit of time, I think I could have figured it out. But you know, then again, I've worked in the industry for 20 years, and my first job was in performance attribution. <laughs> so I guess I should be able to do that. And those underlying performance figures, Raise only publishes them once a year, which is about as transparent as a brick wall. So the only investor-friendly thing about Raise is the actual app. Yeah. So for, for our verdict, for smaller balances, Raise just doesn't make sense. Exposure to large cap ETFs is not worthy of a 2% fee if you've got that average account balance, plus the underlying issuer fee for the ETF. It's also extremely important to know where Raise fits into your portfolio. Once you've gone through the portfolio construction process to find your goals and time horizon, do any of these portfolios actually fit into that asset allocation required? Yeah, and one one other thing, I'll just keep saying stuff. One thing that drives me uh, drives me nuts is that there's actually a Facebook this is like your group. Therapy session. Now. I know, I need therapy. Um, but there's actually a Facebook group that is just for Rays, and let's just say people are very very passionate about Rays in this Facebook group, and frankly more passionate about Rays than I've ever been about anything in my entire life. But uh, but since Rays introduced these custom portfolios where you can set your own asset allocation, people have been posting screenshots of their portfolios and asking for feedback. And that's the thing that drives me nuts. So every time I want to write, how am I supposed to know if your portfolio is right if I don't know anything about you? It's kind of the equivalent of posting an outfit and asking if people think it suits you without them knowing what you look like or where you're actually going to wear it. So are you going to a royal wedding? Are you going down the block to the corner store to pick up a six pack of VB? It's different, right? <laughs> That is like, that's literally your worst analogy ever. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. What are alternatives to raise, Mark? So there is Six Park and Stockspot, and they're both similar to Raise in that they are portfolios of ETFs with varying allocations based on your risk profile. So they both have tiered pricing structure, so just like Raise, and that includes flat fee accounts and then also percentage-based fee accounts. All right. So Shani, what kind of investors might benefit from robo-advice platforms like this? I think that robo-advice is difficult to group together. Robo-advice has been a jumping off point for a lot of people. It's given investors the confidence to enter the market and actively learn about investing. So platforms like Raise are great for investors who are starting out and dipping their toes in the market, but it's also important that the amount you invest makes sense and you're getting the right asset class exposure for your Calls. At the end of the day, you're investing in readily available ETFs that you could invest in once as a long-term investor and avoid that 0.275% fee tacked on if you have a larger balance. So let's move on to Spaceship. Spaceship has three thematic portfolios and they pride themselves on low cost, low barrier investing. There's no minimum investment. We won't spend much time going into what we think about thematic ETFs unless, Mark, you want to take another spin at it. But ultimately, what we can say about Spaceship's investing methodologies is that they are questionable. When we look at Spaceship's origin fund, they say that the objective of the fund is to provide longer term capital growth by investing in companies with large market capitalizations. And they do this through a rules-based investment strategy that identifies companies with large market capitalizations and applies an equal weighting within each asset allocation. Yeah, I love it when they say stuff like yeah. this, right? Like It, <laughs> it is sounds just, very smart. It but, does sound very yeah. smart. But so what they're basically saying is that they're choosing large companies to invest in and they don't disclose any other of their criteria 
criteria. Yeah, the only criteria they have is large. Yeah, it's like it's like when you order chips. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's the only order available. Yeah, with is lots large. of chicken cells. Exactly. Please. Exactly. Yeah. So the other funds are similar. What we will say is it's extremely low cost. You're not paying fees on anything under five thousand dollars, and between zero point zero five percent and zero point one percent on balances above five thousand dollars. However, these investing themes are extremely specific, and has been noted and rightly so on the website that these investment strategies carry concentration risk. Yeah, and concentration risk is really just being exposed to one market or industry. And what this exposure means is that investors are extremely reliant on the survival and performance of one part of the economy and one part of the market and probably would not be suited for standalone investment. Yeah, so we've laid these products out on the table. There's managed fund platforms, broker platforms, and robo-advice platforms. All of these products have their merits and detractions, but ultimately it's about you finding the vehicle that will be the best vehicle to take you to your destination. All right, so this episode could have been ours if we looked at each platform in detail, mm-hmm. but hopefully some of the discussion should allow you to come up with you know, a bit of a checklist for what to look for. So as Shani said, it starts with knowing a bit about yourself, what are your goals, and also what is your financial situation? How much money do you have to invest? Is it a lump sum? How much can you save each month? And what is the right amount of asset allocation to actually help you achieve your goals? So once you've done this, yeah, you can go through a bit of a checklist. Look at the fees. How do they align with your particular circumstances? So transaction fees matter less if you aren't going to trade much. Account maintenance fees matter a lot if you have low balances. And then what are the investment choices? Is it a multi-asset portfolio? Then look at that asset allocation and how that compares to a truly passive index. So we've done it. We've done it. That was a bumper episode. That was big. Yeah, it was big. And obviously, people are not aware of this, but I screwed this episode up like six different times. (laughs) You you soldiered through. You were a champ. Yeah, we had to. For six park, I kept saying six pack, which probably- I know what's on your mind. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not talking about abs there. But, uh, (laughs) But anyway, we made it through. So once again, we would love to get comments or feedback. So you can rate the podcast. You can add comments in your podcast app. Also, my email address is in there. So send me through any episode ideas that you have. Yeah, exactly. Or any other general feedback. And uh, yeah, we would both love to hear from you. So thank you guys very much for joining. Any final words, Shawnee, you want to share what that psychic said? Not this time, mate. Okay, she's going to keep this (laughs) secret. But thank you guys for joining. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.